Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I don't know if we have talked about this specifically before, but uh, the whole topic today in this hour is going to uh, discuss Roman Catholicism. And it all started with a conversation I started having with a dear friend of mine about four months ago. And he was is a born-again believer, but loved and was so attracted to the Mass. And he said, can I ask you questions about your Catholic upbringing? And I said, absolutely. And I did my very best to answer as many questions as I could. And I realized that some of my um, Catholic training ceased around eighth grade, maybe. So I wasn't as sharp with some of the answers, and I couldn't be as thorough as I'd like to be. But I uh, went to a Catholic grade school where our religion teacher in seventh grade said we're all raised to believe in God and be part of the church community. But there will come a time when you have to take a personal ownership in your faith and make a a decision, not a decision your parents made, but one that you're going to make to choose to follow Jesus. And I thought, oh, this is the best news I've ever heard. Can I do it today? And I did that day. So that was an exciting day for me. But my guest is Dr. Greg Allison, and he's written a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. And I know if you've got a question, you are so welcome to text it over. I, I know this hour is going to be uh, respectful and kind and all of uh, that. So any question you have, I'd be more than delighted to ask on your behalf. You can text it over to 877-933-2484. Dr. Greg Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bill, and uh, welcome listeners. I'm so thrilled that you're tuning in, and uh, any questions, just like Bill said, text it to him, and I'm glad to see if I can answer them. Yeah, and your uh, name is spelled with two Gs, G-R-E-G-G, Allison. It was, and, and I'm it was po- my mother's maiden name. Okay. My mother's maiden name became my first name, yes. Oh, awesome, and I'm, I, I'm, I, I guarantee every spell checker in the world is going to dump your second G. Uh, in uh, conversations, email conversations with you, that must have been what happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's ex- exactly what happened because I looked at my email and yeah. I thought, Greg, I'm missing a G. And I typed <laughs> two Gs and my spell checker took one away. So there you go. All I right. know it's the spell checker, so no problem. Okay, good. Now, I know you've written a book uh, called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. So what I'd really love to do is start with the similarities. What do Protestants and Catholics seem to enjoy in common? A lot. Uh, And I think this is a really good place to start. Uh, Before we talk about differences, and there are many of those, we should look at what do we, uh, evangelicals or Protestants, share in common with Roman Catholics. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity, we all agree that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We agree about the person of God, the attributes of God. He is everywhere present. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, eternal, wise, gracious, uh, righteous, holy, etc., etc. We agree about revelation, that God initiated uh, a disclosure, a, a revelation of himself through his word. 
We agree about the person of Jesus Christ, that he was the eternal son of God who became uh, a full human being. So he was the God-man. We largely agree about the work of Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, he was buried, he died for our sins, he rose again. We agree about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. He convicts us of sin. He regenerates us. He sanctifies us. We agree about human beings being created in the image of God and fallen into sin. We agree in large part about salvation, that Christ, when he died on the cross, died as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin, and his work is sufficient to accomplish our salvation. We agree kind of a little bit about the idea of the church, though there's a major, some major disagreements, but we all agree that the church is the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we agree in large part about the future, the return of Jesus Christ, last judgment, resurrection, new heavens and new earth. So all of those areas are commonalities that we share together. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. He's written a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. And there's already some questions coming in, Greg, so this will be uh, fun for me. Um, But maybe you would talk about uh, why were the two principles of Protestantism, which would be sola scriptura and justification, why were they so revolutionary in the religious uh, situation of the 16th century? Those two key areas... Uh, really produced the division uh, between the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only existing church, and then these new Protestant churches. Uh, So it was a matter of authority. Uh, How does God authoritatively reveal himself to us? According to the Roman Catholic Church, God authoritatively reveals himself to human beings through scripture and tradition, that is, oral teachings that Jesus communicated to his apostles, who in turn orally communicated those teachings to their successors, the bishops. And this tradition is fostered and protected and proclaimed by the uh, magisterium of the church, the pope, the teaching office of the church. So that was the Catholic view. And Protestants said, no, uh, a divine authoritative revelation does not come from scripture and tradition, as interpreted by the magisterium and taught by the magisterium, but rather scripture alone. So that was a key point. And then in the matter of salvation, justification, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the sanctification and the inner renewal of a person. Uh, Protestants said that's not how we understand the Bible. We understand, according to scripture, that justification isn't about inner transformation. It's a lifelong process. Rather, it's God's declaration that we are not guilty, but righteous instead. So those two big points, sola scriptura, scriptures are authority, and justification, those are the two points at the real heart, the core of the Reformation in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. His book is called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. And this is a very kind, loving hour, and I want you to know that you're safe with any question you have. Uh, Rosie and I both grew up Catholic and came to our saving faith uh, through uh, our Catholic tradition. And I came to faith when I was uh, 13, and um, I have great love for the Catholic Church. Now, I do have some issues with some of the traditions that don't feel as biblical to me, uh, Greg, so maybe you would 
be willing to share some of your discoveries on some of the traditions and how they can uh, not feel uh, biblical to the Protestants? Well, let's take um, the doctrine of Mary. Uh, I think a lot of evangelicals even who become Roman Catholics struggle with the emphasis that the Church places on Mary. Uh, I think um, this idea that Mary was predestined before all time to become the mother of our Lord, and she was well prepared when Gabriel the angel came and made the announcement that she would become the mother of the Son incarnate, she was well prepared to give her assent to becoming the mother of Jesus Christ. The Catholic doctrine, the part of tradition that proclaims this, is the Immaculate Conception of Mary, Mm -hmm. which maintains that uh, she was preserved, as she was being conceived, she was preserved immune from the stain, the taint of original sin, so she was conceived without sin. And then Catholic theology continues and says that she was born without sin, she lived her whole life without sin, evidenced by her virginity, and then at the end of her life, she was taken up, both body and soul, into heavenly glory. That's the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary. Mm -hmm. And Protestants, uh, looking at those two doctrines that come from Catholic tradition, those are two that they really wrestle with. Yeah, Mary's a big one. Um, And I think, uh, Greg, wouldn't you say that there were theologians from the past that believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary? And yes. even Luther believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. But Absolutely. Some of, some of the Protestant heroes did that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but they would not agree that that perpetual virginity was a sign of her continued uh, sinlessness, her conception without uh, sin, and her sinlessness throughout her, her, her whole life. They would say, yes, Mary never engaged in sexual intercourse with um, Joseph or any other man, but they would not go to, as far to say that means that she was sinless throughout her whole life. Mm-hmm. But if Scripture says that Mary and Joseph didn't come together until after Jesus was born, uh, why is uh, sex between a husband and a wife so defiling? W- why would that be so defiling to Mary? It wouldn't be. Well, of course, um, of course, it wouldn't be. But it, it but there's this idea that Mary has to have perpetual virginity. Um, The Roman Catholic Church, one of its seven sacraments is matrimony, so it holds marriage and sexual intercourse in highest esteem. Mm -hmm. But I think for the purpose of Mary in being the unique mother of the Son of God incarnate, uh, there is something telling, there's something particular about her not engaging in sexual intercourse with her husband and he abstaining from sexual intercourse with her as the adopted earthly father of Jesus, there's something to that that the Catholic Church emphasizes without ever trying to taint marriage and or sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. And of course, but we read that passage right in Matthew. Uh, Joseph did not know her, did not have sexual intercourse with Mary until right she had given birth. That until, I think, really does push us in the direction saying, and after Jesus was born, they engaged in normal sexual intercourse as evidenced by Jesus' brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And some would argue that 
when you say brothers and sisters, that's more of a reference to cousins. It's not actual flesh and blood brothers and sisters. That's exactly right. That's the Roman Catholic understanding right. of that common word, which we translate brothers, brothers and sisters. Right. It can also mean kinship, right? Right, so kinship. Cousin. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and so that would be a difference in the Protestant Roman Catholic understanding of that whole idea. Were there uh, other brothers, were there brothers and sisters of Jesus? Protestants say yes. Catholics would say no. This word really points to Jesus' cousins or relatives. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. He's written a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. And if you have a question you'd like uh, Greg to answer, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio change the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Monday's going well. If you just pulled into into uh, your car, turned on the radio, thank you for doing that. I always love that you tune into Faith Radio and listen to the show. I've got Dr. Greg Allison today as my guest. He's written a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. He got his PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's a professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he teaches annually on Roman Catholicism for the Rome Scholars and Leaders Network. So uh, he is quite the authority. Always uh, find this to be a very fascinating topic, as do many of my listeners, because I have to say, Greg, the questions are pouring in. That's fantastic. And your questions so far have been excellent. Really, really good. Oh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that very much. Here's a question that came in. Um, Perfect timing on today's topic of Catholic questions. Yesterday, my dad shared his concern that my daughter and I won't get into heaven because since we uh, go to church outside of the Catholic faith, it's an evangelical church. He's convinced that if we don't receive last rites before we die, we won't receive eternal salvation. I asked him to show me where in the Bible it says that, and he said he would ask the priest. Can you provide scripture I can share with him to assure him our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection is enough? That is, according to, to uh, scripture, uh, Paul in particular in uh, his letter to the Romans, his letter to the Galatians, emphasizes that salvation uh, is appropriated, or a, a salvation which is accomplished by Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, that salvation is appropriated. It's received by faith and faith alone. Now, uh, the, the, the notion that this uh, listener uh, has here, outside the Catholic faith, that is a, a major idea of Roman Catholicism. It goes all the way back to the second, third century, that outside of the church, there is no salvation. Uh, so the church has historically believed that. In more recent times, since Vatican II, Vatican Council II, 1962 to 1965, the church is less uh, adamant about the church being the only way to salvation because the Roman Catholic Church recognizes that, for example, we Protestants, because we have Scripture, because we have the triune God, because we 
have Jesus Christ because we have baptism of the Lord's Supper. We, too, are genuine believers. So even the more modern, the contemporary Roman Catholic Church would disagree then with this uh, idea that they, these these people will not get into heaven because they won't have last rites. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. 40 questions about Roman Catholicism. Another one that came in, uh, Greg, is do Catholics have a different Bible? Yes. Um, there's a slight difference. Not anywhere in the New Testament. The mm-hmm. Protestant New Testament and the Roman Catholic New Testament are exactly the same. The difference comes in our Old Testament. So we as Protestants, we have 39 books in our Old Testament. Catholics have the same 39 books plus seven more and additions to what we call Esther and what we call Daniel. So these seven additional writings are called the apocryphal writings. They are Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus. We both have Ecclesiastes, right? Both mm-hmm. Protestants and Catholics. Catholic Bible adds Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees. So there's seven additional books. And then the Catholic version of Esther and the Catholic version of Daniel are longer than are the Protestant uh, passage, uh, books. So uh, those are the differences in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That is very helpful. Thank you uh, for that, Greg. Um, Romans 3.23, how could Mary be without sin? Um, Because she was predestined to become the mother of our Lord. Mm -hmm. He had to be well prepared to give her assent, to say yes to the angel Gabriel, Uh, when he made the announcement that she would become the mother of Jesus. Now, what, what prompted Mary, what guaranteed that Mary would say yes to the angel's announcement rather than no? Mm -hmm. Well, she was conceived without sin. She was born without sin. She never sinned. So there was no way that she would ever say no to Gabriel's announcement about the will of the Lord for her, Mary, to become the mother of the Son incarnate. So uh, this is the notion of why Mary had to have been conceived without sin and sinless throughout her whole whole life. And the Catholic view is that Mary is indeed redeemed. She's saved by Jesus Christ, but in a different way than we are. We are saved by Jesus Christ as sinners, right? Right. God, through Christ, rescues us out of sin, right? Mm-hmm. He's the in all. She was saved or redeemed from sin by being preserved from ever falling into it. Oh, beautiful. So, different idea of redemption or salvation mm-hmm. cases. So she would never be called a sinner, but she was still saved or redeemed by God preserving her from ever having the taint of sin, ever falling into sin. Mm-hmm. And a person of amazing faith, truly one of the m- most amazing stories of faith when Gabriel visits her and says, you will give birth to the Savior. <laughs> Let it be done to me yes. according to your word. And her life is about to get blown up. Yeah, yeah we don't, I don't think we quite understand the predicament that no. she's finding herself in. Right. But that is an amazing 
uh, the Catholics call it obedience of faith, yep. right? Obedience of faith, which we as Protestants and Roman Catholics do well to imitate and, uh, and follow. We want to say, whenever God gives us his will, may it be done to me according to your word. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. His book is 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. And maybe a quick uh, question, Greg, is why did they call it Roman Catholicism? Why not just Catholicism? Yeah, um, going back to the very early church, and we're talking about the third and fourth century, so just a couple hundred years after Jesus lived, the church self-identified with four attributes, four characteristics. The church is one, holy, Catholic, or universal, and apostolic. And that's the way the church defined itself for about a thousand years. The church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. In the year 1208, the word Roman was added to that list of descriptors. It came about because a a, a Roman Catholic uh, priest or pastor left the Catholic Church and attached himself to a breakaway movement called the Valdensians. They're kind of proto-Protestants, pre-Protestants. Anyway, he broke away and joined this, according to the Catholic Church, this heretical uh, breakaway movement. And later in his life, he recanted, and he confessed his heir, and he confessed what the true church is. He said the Holy Church, Roman, Catholic, and apostolic. And so at the beginning of the 13th century, this adjective Roman was added to describe what is the true church. It's the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. Greg, um, I'm, I'm curious as to... Um, what is the the Roman Catholic view of perseverance and assurance of salvation? That's a major difference between many Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Reformed Protestantism, so we're talking about Presbyterians, Reformed, Reformed Baptists, do affirm the perseverance of the saints— and the assurance of salvation. What do they mean? Perseverance of the saints is a divine work, a mighty work of God, uh, by which he holds us in Christ through all of our trials, our tribulations, our temptations. He holds us in Christ. He protects us by his power as we continue to walk with Jesus by faith so that we will indeed, with guarantee, receive salvation at our death or the Lord's return. This is based on 1 Peter 1.5. So perseverance is a mighty act of God holding us in Christ, and assurance of salvation, if we can define that, is our subjective confidence based on God's preserving of us in Christ. It's our subjective confidence that we are indeed Christians, and we will remain so for all of our life. Mm-hmm. Roman, the Roman Catholic Church denies uh both perseverance uh, of the saints and the assurance of salvation. For example, Roman Catholic Church has uh, two notions of, or two categories of sin, venial sin and mortal sin. Okay, Greg, we're going to have to pick this up at the other side of the break. I know you're on a roll right now, and I hate to interrupt, but uh, we do have to, uh, I got a little bit swept away. So we'll take a break and be right back with Dr. Greg Allison and 40 questions about Roman Catholicism. 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. So glad to have Dr. Greg Allison on my show. I'm meeting him for the first time, and I hope you're enjoying. He's written a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism, and I'm looking at my producer, Rosie, and both Rosie and I grew up Catholic, and I loved my time in the church, and I loved my friends, and I loved everything about the Mass, and it was a time where I came to uh, saving faith. I, I came growing up knowing that God loved me, and I also knew that there was a time when I wanted to make my faith my own. So I came to a, a born-again experience, and it was a wonderful thing. So uh, all these questions that are still coming in, Greg, let me ask you about um, what about saying the rosary? Isn't Jesus the only way to, the only one to pray to? Yes. Um, I think we should clarify first what the rosary is and what it isn't. Um, The rosary is a counting mechanism to help Roman Catholics remember where they are in their prayer cycle. Uh, And so it's not uh, like a talisman or kind of a magical uh, thing that that Catholics use. It simply helps them to remember, are they right now praying the Our Father who art in heaven, or are they praying the Hail Mary? So, So, yes, it's proper, and we would encourage Roman Catholics and Protestants alike we I, daily, I pray, our Father who art in heaven. I pray the Lord's prayer on a daily basis. Me too. And that's excellent. I agree with the, the questioner here, um, but we as Protestants don't pray to Mary because Jesus is our High Priest. He's the one who intercedes for us. He's the one who has died for uh, for our sins on the cross and through His resurrection. So we don't need another intermediary between us and Jesus and God. So uh, we would disagree, Protestants would disagree with Roman Catholics in saying the rosary, though it's just a counting mechanism, is wrong if for its uh, encouragement to pray to Mary. Well, Greg, you know, people all, the day, all day long say, hey, would you pray for me? I've got a struggle, and they describe the struggle, and you go, I'd be happy to pray for you. What's wrong with them just saying, I want to go to Mary, the mother of my Savior, and say, would you pray for me? That comes as a very natural thing. I, I remember a woman uh, talking to a pastor and saying, sometimes I just have to talk to another woman. That's, a, that's really well said, and it's an excellent point. Um, from a Protestant perspective, we don't pray to Mary because there's no biblical uh, example, there's no biblical instruction, there's no biblical command to pray to Mary or any of the saints or to anyone who is in heaven, for that matter. Um, Rather, we are always encouraged, we're exhorted, we're commanded to ask prayer from those who are living in this earth, uh, fellow believers, brothers and sisters. And so we as Protestants, following strictly that pattern, don't pray to Mary, the saints, or anyone else in heaven, but we ask for prayer from living human beings, Remembering, too, that Jesus, as our high priest, knows everything that we go through. He's been through everything that we as human beings could possibly experience, and he is able to come to our help, give us grace and mercy in our time of need, 
him. He is the one that we need most. And, and so we don't need Mary, the saints, others in heaven. And we, we, we covet the, we, we desire, and we covet the prayers of people on earth to join us. But remember, it's Jesus who is listening to those prayers coming to uh, uh, comfort us and uh, direct us to his grace and mercy. And it's not the prayer itself, but who we pray to and what he's going to do on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. His book is 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism, and I wish we had three hours to ask all 40. But another question that came in, Greg, is, is confession with the priest necessary for salvation and forgiveness? And does the priest have the power to absolve sins and mandate specific penance? And does penance play a role in salvation, or is it just an act of faith? From a Roman Catholic view, because penance is a sacrament, it is indeed necessary for salvation. All seven Roman Catholic sacraments are necessary for salvation according to Roman Catholic theology. So penance is necessary. So uh, Roman Catholics don't need to go to penance if they commit a venial sin, a kind of a minor sin that uh, isn't heinous, it's not premeditated, things like that. But in the case when they commit mortal sin, so a grievous, heinous sin against one or more of the Ten Commandments without any reference towards God, premeditated, fully consensual. If they commit a mortal sin, they must, in order to obtain forgiveness from the Catholic Church, they must go to the sacrament of penance. And that involves contrition, confession, that is listing their actual sins, and then receiving from the priest absolution, right? He absolves them of their confessed sins, and he gives them acts of penance to do to prove right, their sincerity, and make satisfaction for their sin. So he might say, uh, over the course of the next week, pray the Our Father, pray the uh, Hail Mary five times each day. Uh, And and so that would be the priest absolving and uh, directing what acts of penance the Roman Catholic confessing people should do. So that is a a very, very important part of the Roman Catholic faith. Mm Mm-hmm. Greg, when you think of confession now, I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, in James chapter 5, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's something very healing and biblical about confessing sins to one another. Um, Talk about the experience in the uh, confessional. Uh, The experience in the confessional uh, can be, uh, for my friend, a very frightening Remember, you're, you're appearing before a priest uh, who has authority to absolve you of your sins, and the expectation is that you will honestly list your sins, not covering up or not minimizing them, but uh, saying them honestly, truthfully, fully, and then uh, being contrite. This is not just going through the motions, but being contrite and, and then carrying out the penance that the priest prescribes for you. So uh, that is modeled in a way after James chapter 5, the passage that you uh, cited here. It's interesting, in James 5, 13 and following, James is actually talking about uh, the prayer of healing for those who are sick. And so in my church, right, if someone is sick, 
um, maybe uh, just has had the, the uh, uh, analysis of cancer. There's, uh, there's cancer in her body or his body. Uh, this person will come to us. We will anoint this uh, uh, friend, this brother or sister, uh, with oil in the name of the Lord. We'll put hands on him or her, pray. But before we do that, we also ask, do you think your sickness is in any way tied to any personal sin? We're not committing the error that Jesus exposes in John chapter 9, the man born blind. Was did the man born blind, did he sin or his parents sin? We don't believe that every case of sickness is directly tied to personal sin. But we want to give this brother or sister an opportunity to confess that sin to us as we pray for him or her. And, and it's a remarkable experience, right? Mm-hmm. As confession takes place, guilt, shame, fear uh, is, is lifted. You can see the countenance of the brother or sister's face uh, just lighting up. And then we pray, we anoint, we pray for healing. And it's a wonderful experience. It's different in a Protestant church, though, than it is in the Roman Catholic confessional. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest, and some great questions are coming in, Greg, and I really appreciate uh, my listeners that have these thoughtful questions. And I knew this would come up, and here it is, and it's time we uh, talk about purgatory. And the question is, where did that come from, and why do we need it if we have Jesus? Uh, Purgatory comes from one of those books that I listed as an apocryphal writing that's found in the Roman Catholic Old Testament, but not in the Protestant Old Testament. Second mm-hmm. Maccabees chapter 12 is the, for Roman Catholics, the basis for the doctrine of purgatory. And the idea here is praying for the dead, giving money for the dead, for an expiation, for a sacrifice for the dead. And on that basis, Roman Catholic Church uh, holds to purgatory. With with Roman Catholics, we Protestants agree that there are two eternal destinies of uh, believers. Uh, uh, sorry, two eternal destinies of, of human beings. One is heaven, for those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other is hell, for those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Catholics and Protestants alike agree these are two eternal destinies. Roman Catholicism adds a temporal destiny, which is uh, purgatory, and it is indeed based on Second uh, Maccabees chapter 12. So um, let me just read a definition of purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So uh, purgatory is a temporal destiny of those who die in God's grace and fellowship, but they're not perfectly holy. They're not perfectly purified. So in purgatory, you can hear purgation. You can hear purification and purgatory. They undergo this purification. Their destiny of heaven is assured uh, but they need to render satisfaction to God for the forgiven sins that they committed during their earthly life. That's purgatory. Mm-hmm. Greg, I'm curious about the focus in in Catholicism is on the Mass and the Eucharist, and in Protestantism it seems to be on the pa- on the pastor doing the preaching. So maybe talk about those differences. 
those are uh, major differences uh, between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. This goes back to the time of the Reformation, where Protestants and Catholics alike agreed that the Church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. But Martin Luther, Huldrych Zwingli, John Calvin, and others insisted that the Roman Catholic Church of their day was not truly one holy Catholic and apostolic, but had undergone a lot of additions, accretions, a lot of uh, problems. And so how would uh, Martin Luther and his band of Lutherans, how would John Calvin and his band of Reformed believers, how could they distinguish themselves from the Roman Catholic Church? And so the Protestant Reformers articulated two marks of a true church, the first of which is preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. And so this is what we just, you just mentioned. This is an emphasis, particularly uh, coming out of the Reformation. The second mark is two sacraments or ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not seven, but just two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So two marks of Protestantism from the very beginning of this movement have been uh, preaching and then these two sacraments or ordinances. So preaching has characterized Protestant churches from the very beginning. Thankfully, the Roman Catholic Church since Vatican II, 1962 to 1965, the Roman Catholic Church is also insisting on the reading of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God during the Mass. Part of the Mass is called the Liturgy of the Word. The other part's called the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So there's been amazing changes in the Roman Catholic Church in the last 50-plus years, really insisting the Word of God needs to be read and it needs to be preached. So there's some maybe uh, a growing sense of commonalities or shared emphasis on preaching the Word. Mm-hmm. And I know, uh, Greg, so many Catholic people that truly love Jesus, and I know it to be true that they are living a transformed life. And I think sometimes they get unfairly picked on. Sure. So uh, if, if your listeners have gone to a Catholic Mass or regularly go to a Catholic Mass, they know um, that during the Liturgy of the Word— the first half of the Mass, there is always an Old Testament reading, mm-hmm. there's always uh, always a New Testament reading, and there's always a reading from one of the four Gospels. So a reading from the Old Testament, reading from the New Testament, a reading from one of the four Gospels. So the Mass is saturated, if you will, by the reading of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So of course our Catholic friends, uh, listening to the Word of God read, uh, they are absorbing uh, Scripture, and they are being sanctified. They're being directed to know God and His will mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Let me take a short break. Dr. Greg Allison is my guest. His book is called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. And boy, you've gotten some great questions coming in for Greg. If we have time for a couple more, text them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. 
the show. If you just tuned in, I'm talking to Dr. Greg Allison. He's written a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism, which has been a very interesting, very uh, respectful conversation, which I appreciate. He's a very, Greg, you're a very thoughtful guy. I appreciate that about you. And I got a nice comment from a listener. You're going to enjoy this. Um, my grandma was Catholic and even made her own beer until she got saved and she broke all the beer bottles. <laughs> That's a great comment. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. Let's talk about uh, the the Eucharist in a Catholic Mass and the idea of transubstantiation, where it, it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. Um, Protestants find, I think, have a different take that's bread and, and grape juice, and we're doing this in memory. And the Catholics have a very different idea. They do. This is another one of the major points of division it arose in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation. It continues. As I just mentioned, in a Roman Catholic Mass, the first half is the liturgy of the Word, so there's a reading and preaching of Scripture. Mm-hmm. The second half is called the uh, liturgy of the Eucharist, and it, it culminates in transubstantiation. That is, the priest, as he invokes the Holy Spirit's presence and transforming power, and as he recites the words of institution, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body, and so forth. When the priest engages in those two acts, then the bread becomes changed into the substance of the bread becomes the substance of the body of Jesus Christ. The substance of the wine changes into the substance of the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So the Roman Catholics are taking in then the sacramental, the substantial presence of Jesus Christ as they participate in the Eucharist. No Protestant from the time of the Reformation till today has ever agreed with transubstantiation. Uh, Protestants say there's not a biblical basis. It's more philosophically oriented and things like that. But Protestants disagree about what happens during the Lord's Supper, right? So for some uh, Protestants, uh, the the uh, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is a memorial of Jesus' death. It proclaims the death of Jesus Christ until he comes. So it helps us remember what Christ has done. Our Presbyterian Reformed brothers and sisters think about Christ being spiritually present, not physically or sacramentally present, but spiritually present uh, as the Lord's Supper is celebrated. But there are no Protestants that would agree with transubstantiation, and then Roman Catholics do not allow, officially do not allow Protestants from participating in the Eucharist because, according to the Catholic Church, we have an improper view of the Eucharist. So this is a major, major, major dividing point between the two traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, appreciate that, Greg. Um, I still have a number of uh, questions coming in, and I want to just be so careful with our time and uh, mindful of our discussion on Catholicism, because it is, uh, it, it is a position that many believers love the Catholic faith, and I've had people he- here at the station reach out to me and say, I would call myself a charismatic Catholic. Um, not only do I love Jesus and have a born-again experience, but I can't wait to tell more people about hum- how to come to saving faith in Christ. And I want to just stand up and cheer. In the 1960s, um, Pentecostal theology of a second blessing following conversion, a second blessing 
called Baptism with the Holy Spirit, Pentecostal theology, which started at the beginning of the 20th century, made its way into mainline denominations, uh, Reformed Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, the Roman Catholic Church. So we have this phenomenon continuing today of charismatic Catholics who say they um, have had a second experience, a blessing um, following their conversion, uh, which they call baptism with the Holy Spirit, which results in fantastic fruit in their life. As you mentioned, praying with vigor and strength and fortitude, praising God, perhaps in tongues, languages that they've never spoken or never studied before. There is a zeal to share their faith, to proclaim the good news to others, uh, and, and so forth. So this is a phenomenon within the Roman Catholic Church called charismatic uh, Catholicism. Hmm. Really interesting. Another question, Greg, is there a, a book you can suggest that compares Protestantism to the Orthodox Christian faith? I am not aware of one. Okay. Uh, my specialization is Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Okay. I don't know anyone who's done the Eastern Orthodox uh, book, but I think it'd be very important if it hasn't been done before. Sure. All right, here's a question uh, about what what do you say about a 25-year-old who heard about Jesus but didn't fully understand the gospel versus other religions and then died of an accidental overdose? Does he go to heaven? Uh, isn't it true that accepting the gospel is not on a time clock, that in death meeting God there is that time to accept or reject the Lord upon receiving complete understanding then? I don't hold that position. I don't hold that at death we get a second or a first or second or tenth opportunity to hear the gospel, understand it, and embrace it. I, I, I don't hold that position. I think it is a position that is growing in popularity among both Protestants and Roman Catholics. Since Vatican II, 1962, 1965, the Roman Catholic Church has become more, what we would say, inclusive, such, affirming such that even Jews and Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Taoists, agnostics, and atheists, by following the tenets of their religion or the dictates of their own conscience, they can be saved through the grace of the Holy Spirit. I don't hold that position, mm-hmm. but it is becoming more popular today. Mm-hmm. And Greg, isn't it fair to say that regardless of what denomination you grew up in, whatever training you had, you may a, have not had good training, or maybe you didn't pay as careful attention as you should have. But I did come to a point where I understood in seventh grade, and no fault of my educators, I believe, this is just what I was understanding in my seventh grade brain, that if my good deeds were going to outweigh my bad deeds, um, a merciful God would look at my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds and allow me into a good place. That seemed reasonable. Yeah. Um, I would just encourage all of our listeners uh, who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ to be fervent and uh, friendly, loving as they meet with their friends, their family members, their colleagues at work, their neighbors. If, if, if our listeners have grasped the importance, the eternal importance of the gospel, I would really encourage all of them to uh, engage in sharing the good news with their friends and neighbors, because it it is that critical, isn't it? 
Uh, it really is. And I always say there's this sense of urgency that we should all have because the speed at which things change in life is so unpredictable. Um, you know, my mom always used to say, well, I have today with hope for tomorrow, but what, what are we promised? Nothing, really. Nothing, yeah. And we've been pushing and kicking the can down the road for maybe a long time with certain family members or friends or neighbors or whoever, and they may be holding a position. And they're, my, my feeling is every one of my Catholic friends are spiritually pretty, pretty hungry, as am I. And I think that's a great opening for our evangelical, our Protestant listeners. Invite your Catholic neighbors and friends and colleagues at work to study the Bible with you. Mm. Right, love on them, pray for them, and say, "Hey, could we spend an hour every week reading the Bible?" And and I I know I've done this with many Catholics. They absolutely love doing that. Yeah, and and they love to hear, particularly the stories about Jesus in the Gospels. And we all need to better understand who Jesus is and what He has done. He's the one who reached out to the wee little man Zacchaeus. Come on down. And salvation came to Zacchaeus's house. Studying the Bible with Catholics and Protestants uh, working together to mm-hmm. learn scripture is so key and awesome. I think very, very uh, available to people. Awesome. Greg, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Allison has been my guest. His book, 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for all the great questions. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting Faith Radio. You're the best. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.